understand there was some technical difficulties that it was showing last week's stream instead of the live stream. And I think that was because the Lord felt like y'all wasn't paying attention last week. So he wanted to give y'all that again just as a way of reminder, taking you back to 2020 for a minute. A little back to the future action this morning. Well, as it's already been stated, Happy New Year, and we made it. We know that 2020, as a matter of fact, there is a documentary on 2020 on Netflix called Death to 2020. I have not watched this documentary yet, but the title of it makes sense. It makes sense. And I've heard a lot of people rightly so, say things like, you know, worst year ever, can't wait for 2021, so forth and so forth. And a lot of people are we're excited, 2020's over, almost saying it as if the changing of a year is the changing of circumstances, and we know that to not be true. I understand what people mean when they say, man, I can't wait till 2020 is over and now 2021 is here. But if anyone thinks that the changing of the year will ultimately be the changing of cultural circumstances or challenges, doesn't understand anthropology. Because you don't, you don't calendar suffering. Uh, suffering transcends time and it transfers over to years. And so... There were things that happened in 2020 that we still feel the pain of in 2021. And so today we're going to do something a little different, not necessarily different than what we've ever done, but just I wanted I had a different intention initially, but as I've thought a lot about just the reality of the new year and the expectations and the hope for the new year, uh, so many things are going to carry over throughout this year. There are going to be some obviously changes and, and new challenges and things. And hopefully 2021 is a different year in a, in a more pleasing, joyful, happier way than 2020 was. But there's no guarantees. And um, I've seen a lot of people talk as if, man, finally we're out of 2020. Well, we have no idea what 2021 has in store. And uh, it could be wonderful things from the Lord. It could be buckle up. So what we're going to do this morning is look at a familiar story. We're going to make a few observations of this passage. I'm going to kind of do somewhat of a commentary style message where you just give some details about some facts and just to understand the passage. And there's really, there's really two, one main thing that I want us to get, one main point that I want us to get from the 27 verses we're going to look at in John 11. There's just really one main point, but I'm going to kind of walk through this passage in three different acts and just kind of make some commentary on things that I'm saying. So I'm not really teaching this with what we call authorial intent, where the, the, what the author who wrote this scripture meant 
What was his intention in writing? I mean, from this passage, many of us are familiar with Lazarus coming back from the dead. From this passage, I mean, you could come up with a couple different things. And one thing clearly is that Jesus is the resurrection and shows and that he's the son of God. And he shows his power and the reality of his personhood by raising Lazarus from the dead, bringing death to life. So there's a lot of reasons why John wrote this particular scene. I'm not going to go into what he meant when he wrote this, like I typically would when explaining a passage. I want to just make some observations about this to make one main point for all of us to sort of remind ourselves of how to process 2021, especially if it's not as good as we thought it would be, or maybe even worse than 20. 20, God forbid. So let's read these 27 verses and then we'll jump into these three acts to understand what we're talking about this morning. Beginning in verse 17 of John chapter 11, I read this. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still there, was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews were there with her in the, in the house consoling her, saw that Mary got up and quickly went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus told her, said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. 
Father, our text this morning is a narrative that we're over familiar with. I spoke on this and gave ways that I have meditated on this in the last two sermons that I taught at least. So this is a passage we're familiar with, but there's something I believe that you revealed to me that you want us to see to help us prepare for 2021. And so, Father, I pray that what I, what I, what I speak this morning would have, is from you and would have the effect that you want it to have. And whatever I say that is an error, Lord, or is, is insignificant, I pray that you would take it from the minds of my brothers and sisters who are listening. But I pray that if it's something that is important, that you would impress it upon their heart to help them and to remember to press in as we do to the end for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we know this narrative. Let me give a brief background, really brief background. So Jesus is about two miles away, and he gets word from some people that Lazarus has fallen asleep, which is another way of saying Lazarus has died. And so Jesus announces, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go wake our brother. And there's some conversation between him and his disciples because they're wondering, why are you going back there when the Jews just tried to harm you there? You know, like, why would we go back there? If Lazarus is asleep, he'll wake up. And then they makes it clear, no, Lazarus is dead. We're going to go there and you're going to see the glory of God manifest itself. Now, the, the, the scriptures tell us in John 11, particularly in verses one through three, that Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary and Martha and that they love him. So there's a, 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 an affection from God. And, and, and I think it's important whenever you're reading your Bible, we're so familiar sometimes with stories, which we'll see, I think, today that there are certain details that the Bible includes, and we need to wonder, why is he including that detail? Why is it important? Like, what, what does it add to the story to tell us that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? That's an important detail. This is God's word, and every aspect of it that's in it, God wants us to learn from. Why is he telling us that he loved? You don't hear that that often in the, in the New Testament, that Jesus loved these people. Why is he telling us that? Why are some of the details that seem like this detail doesn't add anything to the story, why is he telling us this? We're going to look at some of those kinds of details today. And so Jesus waits and does a couple other things, and then he makes his way to where Lazarus is. Now, he's only two miles away. In their day and age, they would walk two miles probably in 30 minutes to an hour, maybe, depending on the terrain. It wasn't a far away walk for them. So for Jesus to show up four days later when he was two miles away, we obviously know why, but there's something deeper, something else here in the story that I believe God wants us to see today. So we're going to look at, with that background, the stuff that you already know, Jesus has now shown up. Let's look at Act 1. Act 1 is the conversation between Martha and Jesus. Let's go back to verse 17. This is Act 1, the conversation. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained in, seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
Yet even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. This is an interesting exchange. There's something going on here that you just you just miss naturally if you just read this and get to the main part of Lazarus coming back from the dead. Now, as far as scripture is concerned, this is only the second time that Martha is mentioned in an interaction with Jesus. Right. And this is a different Martha. The first time we see Martha in an interaction with Jesus is Luke 10. Well, she invites, this is her first enter, she invites Jesus into her home. This is the first meeting. And she's making a meal, and Mary, who should be helping her, is at the feet of Jesus, sitting there. And we know this narrative. We talked about this, as a matter of fact, earlier on last year, is, is she's upset that Mary is not helping her. And she says, Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? And, and, and Jesus says to her, you've been, you're, you're anxious about many things. And, you know, Mary's doing what is right. I'm not going to take that from her. So that's the first interaction that we see of Martha and Jesus. The second interaction is this scene right here. This is the, as far as we know, in terms of scriptures recording, this is the second time she's interacting with Jesus. If there's other times, then scripture didn't feel the need to record it. So this is, in effect, the next time she's seeing Jesus from the first interaction. And this is a different Martha. This Martha is different. The first Martha questioned if Jesus cared. In this scene, it seems she's grown in her faith because she's not accusing him of not caring. She's actually recognizing that he is under the care of God himself. And so she says this to acknowledge that. She says to him, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, Martha, which I find this very interesting, she went to meet Jesus, but the scripture tells us that Mary stayed in verse 20. The end of verse 20 says, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, remember, we, we always want to at least question, even if we don't get an answer, it's good for us to ponder sometimes, why is God including this detail what, what may be happening? What, what's the point of him acknowledging that Mary remains seated in the house and Martha is the one who went? I mean, we know clearly that, that her remaining seated isn't a rejection of the Lord or because we know just shortly after, in fact, in, in Act 2, we're going to see that when Martha told Mary that Jesus was here, Mary got up and took off and went, to, went at his feet. So this isn't a rejection of the Lord, but there's something else that may be going on here. That detail is included for a reason that Martha's the one who went, but Mary is the one who stayed, remained seated in the house. Now it's clear here from the passage that Martha's the one who heard that Jesus was coming. It didn't say Mary and Martha heard this, but Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she went to meet him. So what we're seeing is that it's possible and I think probably factual that 
that Martha didn't tell Mary that Jesus was here, but she went to meet Jesus first upon hearing that he was coming. And it makes you wonder, what was her, her motive in doing that? We don't know. We don't know. Was Martha jealous of Mary's relationship with Jesus? Possibly. I think, though, it's, it's Martha didn't tell Mary that Jesus was coming because she wanted an audience with Jesus. See, their first interaction in Luke 10, she didn't express faith in the Lord. She expressed frustration. It was Mary who had faith, but now things have changed. They've heard about what Jesus has done. They've heard all these stories about him. Even the people in the crowd, as we read, said, man, couldn't the dude who, brought, who healed a blind man Saved his friend from dying. Like the stories of Jesus bringing people back from the dead. The Luke 7 story of him bringing a, a young man back from the dead in the town of Nain is out there. People know these things about Jesus. So now Martha's coming. She doesn't tell Mary. She's coming because she wants to see Jesus. And I believe this is her moment to express faith in him. That's what I think is happening here. Remember, Mary is the one who washed Jesus' feet with her hair in the, in the home of the Pharisee. So there's already a clear understanding. She washes her feet. She's sitting at his feet in her home. Mary clearly loves Jesus and has faith in Jesus. But the last time we see Martha, we see frustration. But now when we see Martha, we're seeing faith. Martha shows up, and this is her hair-washing moment. This is her chance to express her faith into the Lord. And she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This statement seems like an expression of faith in what Jesus is capable of. You see, it seems like she's indirectly asking him to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Because she says, look, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask of God, he will do. It seems like she's asking, can you bring him back from the dead without really asking, can you bring him back from the dead? And I think Jesus's response gives some credence to that. And this, my kids do this all the time. My kids will come in, especially my youngest. He'll come in and just say something like, <laughs> like they play this game Fortnite, right? And on Fortnite, you can, you can pay real money to get what's called V-Bucks. And so, and it's not really cheap. Like, it's a good hustle because I probably spent a cool million dollars already giving them money to buy stuff in the game. Skins and all this type of stuff, weapons and all this, right? I spent a cool, you know, we should have bought a house by now and I, Oh, I'm, I'm going to race Sue Fortnite. But, 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 but my son will come in and he'll be like, Poppy, man, look at this. Wow, look at these skins. It's a new skins out. Now, I don't play Fortnite. That's not my type of game. So I'll say, some new skins, huh, son? And he'll say, yeah, look, isn't this cool? And he'll have like, a kind of a look on his face. And I'll be like, what, you want some V-Bucks, son? Yeah, can I have some V-Bucks? And I'll be like, son, just ask me. Don't, don't, don't try to hustle me, man. I'm, I'm too slick for that. Just ask me for some V-Bucks, right? And no matter what, he still does it. And I still give him to him because I love to bless him. That's kind of how this is. I feel like Martha is saying, I know whatever God 
We ask him, God, he's going to do. I think she's on the sneak asking him to bring Lazarus back from the dead. And here's Jesus's response right after that that I think proves the point. In verse 23, Jesus says this, your brother will rise again. I think he understands what she's asking. Your brother will rise again. And then she says back to Jesus, well, I know that he will rise again in, in, in the resurrection of the last day. Now, it's hard. That at first, when I first saw this, I thought, okay, all right. Martha's feeling Jesus out a little bit. She's playing possum, you know, like trying to pretend like she's not sure if he's going to do it or not. That's what I initially thought, is that she's just feeling Jesus out some. But then I realized in, in further reading and further study, just really looking at this, they're actually having two different conversations. Or they're having the same conversation from two different points of view. And it doesn't become clearer until later on, but that's what's happening here. They're having the same conversation with two different points of view. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes the conversation and he does something extremely important. He takes the conversation from what he's capable of. I know that God will do whatever you ask him. He turns the conversation from that emphasis, from his capabilities to his character, who he is. And he responds in verse 25 with that notion. And that's important for us to know. It's important for us to understand this. This is what he said in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, he turns it from, I know what God can do, to do you realize who I am? Do you believe in who I am? And that's an important distinction among Christians. This is important for us because one of the things that it means to be a Christian, one of the most undisclosed realities of being a Christian is, is, is holding tensions. Christians have to hold tensions together, and we call that, the Bible calls that faith, is where we hold tensions together. You see, we have to hold the tension of God predestines and knows all things before time and predestined things to happen, but we're responsible for our actions. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's responsible for having a hard heart. These are tensions that are tough. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And when he was a human being, he didn't allow himself to act in his fully, the capabilities of him being fully God. We have to hold that intention. God's character and who he is and God's capabilities sometimes do not seem to match up to us. Yesterday, I read an article about an uh, Instagram influencer. I forgot her name. She was 36-year-old. She is a, a mother of four kids, pregnant. She's a Christian. I, I read some of her statements and encouragement. She seemed like a godly woman. And she was eating breakfast with her family, her four young children. The picture, they couldn't have been more than 10. And her husband looked like a classic, just, it could have been a photo for anything almost. And she died right there in front of her family. And it said, the article said, they could not resuscitate her at all. And she died with a baby in her stomach, which means that baby also died. And she was a believer. And it reminded me of my friend who passed away suddenly two weeks ago. 
And I just thought, wow, Lord. I just said it again, wow, Lord, you just, you are who you are, and you do what you do. And I prayed for her family, that family. And I just said, Lord, you don't owe me. You don't owe me. You do not owe me seeing my kids grow up. You don't owe me anything. But I will take what you give each day, each moment. You see, the God's character sometimes seems to rival his capabilities, if we're being honest, right? Why would a good God allow her, that to happen, dying right in front of her family? Her kids may be traumatized for the rest of their lives. And a baby was dead. Doesn't God protect life? You see, this, this idea of character and capabilities is really a tension that believers, believers have to hold because sometimes what God is capable of doesn't seem to match the character that we think he should have. And that's never true. But it's just part of the tension of being a Christian. Well, Jesus twists the narrative and makes this a tension. He brings this tension to life. Okay, let's, don't just talk about my, my capabilities. Let's talk about my character. Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? And here's Martha's response in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Martha's response to Jesus' statement is good, but it makes the same mistake that many of us do. I've done this faithfully. Unfaithfully, depending on how you, how you frame it. And the mistake is not characters and capabilities. That's not the main point for today. Just wanted to point that out, that this is here. But this isn't the point. This isn't the mistake that she's making. This is the end of Act 1. Let's go to Act 2. Act 2, how God works. Beginning in verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to Jesus, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. This is Acts 2, Act 2. Where we get a glimpse of how God works, or at least an aspect of how God works. Now, right away, this is a different scene than Mary, than Martha. Martha and Mary actually say the same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Identical phrase. Identical. But, but, but Mary is at his feet. So it's a little bit of a different scene. And her response is consistent with 
the previous actions of worship of her washing her hair, his, his feet with her hair in an expensive perfume and her sitting at his feet in her home in Luke chapter 10. This is a consistent response, which led me to, uh, to speculate on why she didn't go with Martha the first time. Because if she hears Jesus, she's there and she's worshiping. But this is less about Mary and more about how God works. Let's just really briefly zoom in, pun intended, and talk about, let's look at this scene. Because the, intention, the intentionality of the details, particularly in verse 30, is very important in understanding how God is. Let's read verse 30. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. That seems like such an unintentional statement, but it tells us a lot about who God is and how God works. First of all, we know that Jesus knows their trial. We heard this in John. If you scroll up into your Bible in John verses 11, three, we know that Jesus knows this. It says this, so the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. We know that Jesus told his disciples that Lazarus is dead. We know that this is a trial for them. But, but Jesus hasn't even come into the village yet, the town. He's still outside of the town. So here is the God who knows that these people love him. And then the scripture tells us that he loves them. And when he shows up to what is probably the greatest trial and suffering that they're facing, he stays at a distance. He doesn't rush into the town. He doesn't rush in to stop the situation and everyone from grieving. Verse 30, after he talked to Martha and understands the, the, the pain that they're experiencing, he still didn't come into the village yet and actually called Mary to come to him. There's a few things that this tell us about God. One, that he cares about those who love him and he cares about how we're doing. But his care doesn't look like the immediate removal of the suffering. These are people that the scripture says he loves. He was two miles away, an hour walk, and he shows up four days later and then doesn't come into the city, the town yet, waits outside of the town and has Martha and Mary come to him. But this is a God who loves them. Don't forget that detail. He loves them. But from his perspective, loving them doesn't mean I'm rushing in and changing everything. Even after the exchange with Martha, this sense of, Lord, I know that God will do what you ask of him. Jesus doesn't show up and say, let me go ahead and do this and make everyone feel better. Even though he knows that's what he's going to do, he experiences the emotional moment that they're having, and he doesn't just come to the rescue like he could. He waits and actually calls the people that he loves to him. His care doesn't always look like the immediate removal of trial and suffering. And in the suffering, 
He wants his people to come to him. They came to him. He called Mary specifically. He's not unaffected by the suffering of his people because he weeps. It says his spirit was deeply troubled twice. First upon seeing those people weeping and then after hearing them say, man, couldn't he bring this Lazarus back? It says his spirit was troubled. He's not unaffected by the suffering. But his glory is always connected to suffering. You see, Jesus told his disciples, you will see God glorified. He told Martha, you're going to see God glorified. But it wasn't at the, it, it wasn't at the removal of suffering. It was in the midst of it. This scene is a microcosm of his life where the suffering and glory come together and they're inextricably linked. You cannot separate suffering and glory from Jesus, and you can't separate suffering and glory from Jesus' people. And those he desires to glorify him are going to do it through some suffering. It's linked. It's linked in who Jesus is, and it's linked in who people are that want to be like who Jesus is. He's not unaffected because they're suffering. It's just that the glory is revealed more in the midst of suffering than it is without it. His glory that will be revealed to us one day will consist of his suffering for us and our suffering in him. And, when, and in him means in faith in his suffering. We're not going to all suffer the way that he did the same way. But in there, there are ways that we suffer in the same way where we resist the devil. We resist the cultural dynamics of evil. We resist the moral character that the world tells us to act in. We, we fight to resist those things, which is a form of suffering because it's not our natural condition. It's a supernatural condition that we get from God. This is how God works. This is a, a snapshot, at least, that here are people that he loves and that the scripture tells us God intentionally wanted us to know that detail. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they love him. And yet he is not rushing in there because they're crying and weeping over Lazarus' death. In fact, he could have stopped them. He, he was told Lazarus is sick. He hadn't even died yet. He was an hour away and could have stopped him from dying, which is what they said. The people, man, couldn't he have, couldn't he have kept them from dying? Now, here's a detail that the Bible doesn't really bring out in full detail, but how did, how, did, how did they know where Jesus was? How did Martha and Mary know where Jesus was to send people to tell Jesus that he's sick? 
The scripture doesn't tell us that, but here's we can deduce from the fact that they knew that they knew that Jesus was close. They knew that he wasn't far away. They knew that he's over there in, in the next village an hour away. Go tell him Lazarus is sick so he can come back and heal him. So when they show up and they say, Lord, he, he wouldn't have died if you had been here. It's because they understood that he was close and he could have stopped it, but he didn't. And so they're kind of perplexed, but they still trust him. They still believe in him. They know. We, we know who you were. We sent people to tell you he was sick. And they're, but they're not complaining, but they're like, man, Lord, you, he wouldn't have died if you were here. Well, they knew he could have been there because they, I believe they knew where he was. Jesus was popular. He did stuff and everybody talked about, hey, he's over there in Bethlehem. He's, in, he's over there. He's in Jerusalem. He's in Judea. He's here. He's there. Hey, people knew where Jesus was. You see, they knew he could have stopped it but he didn't. But that's actually not the mistake that is made in this scene, in this passage. This isn't the main point that I'm getting at. Yes, we have to hold characters and capabilities in that tension. Yes, it's important for us to understand how God works. But the main point, the main misunderstanding that I think we often do that, that is in this scene is now seen in this act, last act, beginning in verse 36. This act three is entitled The Misunderstanding. And here's what happens in beginning in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes have also kept this man from dying? See, even the crowd knew he was close enough to make that happen. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing there, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he had said this. He shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound, hand and foot, with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him. Now, there's a lot in this scene we're not going to hit because I'm not teaching it, trying to explain. I'm just making observations of this passage. I don't want to explain what everything means. And, you know, I'd love to get into details of the, I think it's amazing that he comes out wrapped in linen cloth, thus proving that he was actually dead, that it was a literal name. I'm not going to get into some of those things because there's one main focus of how this act in Act 3 connects to Act 1 and how it's a mistake that we often make in the way we relate to God today. So again, let's zoom in on the conversation Jesus has with Martha. Beginning in verse 39, Jesus says, remove the stone. Remove the stone. And Martha, it tells us, the dead man's sister told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Now, Martha responds 
stating the reality of their present circumstances. Like it wasn't like they knew he was dead. It's proof that he was dead because Martha's saying, look, there's already a stench that we can smell with the rock in place. If you remove the rock, then we're really going to smell that thing. So she's just stating the reality of the present circumstances. But Jesus's response is somewhat surprising. He says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So what's happening here? Jesus is saying, didn't I tell you if you believe you'd see the glory of God? Now, if we go back, now Jesus was specifically, he was specifically talking about raising Lazarus from the dead, but Martha didn't understand it that way. Or at the very least, she wanted it to be done without any consequence to her. And that wasn't clear until Jesus' response here in verse 40. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This exchange is revealing a major misstep on Martha and how many of us sometimes can relate and understand God. You see, Jesus was talking about specific faith, but Martha was talking about broad faith, and they're different. You know how, the, the sun, how we say the Sunday school answer is always Jesus? Sure, but, but, but not, though. Right? Like, it's not, yes, it's always, what's the Bible about Jesus? Yes. But there's other things that happen. There are other aspects. So let's, let's revisit this again. Going back to verse 21. So here she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is what she says to Jesus. Jesus says something very specific. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha responds with something broad. Verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus responds with something specific. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha responds with something broad. In verse 27, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Apparently, in this exchange, Jesus was saying, I'm going to bring Lazarus back from the dead now because those who believe in me don't die. Do you believe I can do this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God that salvation comes through you. You see, that's the right answer, but it's the wrong application. Jesus wasn't asking, do you believe I'm the son of God? He was asking, do you believe that I will bring Lazarus back from the dead right now in front of your eyes? That you will see the glory of God happen in that way? And she responded broadly, yeah, I believe you are the way to salvation. And this reveals a major important reality for the Christian. Because what we're seeing is a snapshot of the way God relates to people who love him and the people that he loves. And what we see here is God requires 
a specific faith, and this is very important. You see, when she said, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world, that's a, a very broad statement about who God is, but that's just a way of salvation. Now, take this into our own lives. Many people who struggle with Jesus, even people who knew our friend Jason, who is now in glory, Many people struggled with God's sovereignty and allowing that to happen. But I didn't hear any of them struggle with, is he the way to salvation? You see, that's a broad statement of faith. I believe that you are the way to salvation. That's not in question. What's often in question in genuine believers is, are you good in this situation? In the specifics of this, that's what I'm wrestling with. Not, are you, do you hold the keys of salvation? And sure, some people struggle with that. And when they get to that point, they end up walking away sometimes. But what most of us wrestle with is not, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? It's, why are you doing it like this? Why did you let this specific situation happen? And when we take broad faith that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and forget to apply it specifically, then there's a misstep. We misunderstand who God is and what God does. Most of our struggles are not, is God the way, is Jesus the way of salvation? Sure, there are some, but that's not what this passage is about. And that's not what I think the emphasis is today. It's not, are you the way to salvation? It's, I don't like the way salvation is going. I don't like the way this is going right now. And this is something different. See, they were, they were having two different conversations or conversations from a different perspective. Because Jesus was addressing specifically what he intends to do, and she's speaking broadly. And this, is, and this is why when you get to the last scene, she's like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 don't remove the rock. Look, it already stinks. It's going to be a problem. You see, she didn't understand the specifics of how God's glory is going to work because it doesn't remove the challenges necessarily. It works through them. You see, it's possible that Martha wanted the glory to be seen without consequence to her, which would have been the stench of her brother, the foul odor of death for all of them. But you see, the glory of God is not about removing the foul odor of our lives necessarily, but about working powerfully through it. And see, sometimes we want the glory of God to be seen without any suffering. But there's no way that happens because suffering and glory are inextricably linked in the person of Jesus and in the persons who follow him. We need faith that God's glory is specifically working in our lives, especially when it's challenging. Not, is he still the way to salvation? Most of us don't question that. Some of us ain't going nowhere as it relates to that. But man, are we hindered significantly when he does something that we don't understand that challenges our perspective. And this is when we need to have a specific faith that God is working to demonstrate his glory for our good. This is why I pray for, our, for, our, for your glory and for our good. This is why I say it almost every prayer. Every time you hear me pray, you say it. In fact, some people I know put it on a T-shirt. Didn't compensate me at all. We might have to talk to them folks. And I'm joking about that. They know who they are. There's a reality about the glory of God and our good that is a tension for us. It's a tension. And we need more than broad faith. 
We need more than just Jesus saved me. That's good, and it's amazing. But there are times when that salvation, we don't like how it's going. Now what? It's not enough that Jesus saved you when you don't like what he's allowing to happen. When people you care about suddenly pass away. When things happen to you. When a virus comes and, 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 and shakes up the world. Broad faith is important, but it's the introduction to faith. It's supposed to grow or be applied specifically. See, Martha wanted glory but no suffering. She wanted her brother back but didn't want to smell his dead body before doing so. And we can be the same. I can be the same. We are the same in how we process glory. You know, 2020, the one thing that 2020 brought to almost everyone was just the idea and the reality of death. Whether you knew someone who died or not is not what I mean. I just mean the reality of death is what 2020 brought in. It brought to us from Kobe Bryant's death on down to whoever died December 31st. It brought to light the reality of our mortality. Why do many of you not interact with other people? Why have you not gone in people's homes? Why don't you like going? Because you don't want to catch a virus that can make you sick and possibly die. If this virus wasn't that deadly, the world wouldn't have changed at all. If people weren't really dying and stuff like that, we would have been like, oh, well, I mean, people don't want to be told they can't go out except for introverts. You know, they don't want to be told they can't go out. And even some of them want to go out at least, go take a walk in the park or something. Who wants to wear a mask on? Everybody's looking like Cobra Commander around here. It's like 12 Monkeys and Bruce Willis, wherever you're just walking along, you know, it's, just, it's, a, it's a crazy reality. Who wants that? The only reason why we're even submitting to these things is because we're afraid to catch the disease and die. And 2020, like no other year that we've seen in a long time, has brought the reality of death to our doorstep. And you know, here's the tension. Because for believers, death is a promotion. Death is a transitional promotion. This is why Paul says we do not grieve as the world grieves. We're sad, but we rejoice. There's no one that we know that's a Christian that died and went to heaven and was like, man, I'm trying to go back. Every one of them are like, man, I can't wait till y'all get here. There's no way you can finally see Jesus and see the saints and be, and, and be wanting to come back to a world full of sin and temptation and evil. And for the believer, death is a promotion. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we should have a death wish. We all want to see a little bit more life. But if we're honest, part of our reason of wanting to see more life is we've been convinced of sort of the American dream of this is the land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. But we're, this is the land of exile. It may be 
better than some other places, but this is an exile. This is a place of exile as well. This isn't where I want to be. Now, I got three boys, and I know, but I'm not guaranteed to see them grow up and be. But what I do want to be guaranteed is that when I die, I'm in the presence of God. And the minute I see him, I ain't got no worries about what's going to happen to them. Because as soon as I remember when Peter, when Jesus said, cast the net on the side of the boat, and then all them fish came in. And then Peter got close to Jesus and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He was like, man, he was, he, was, he was just awestruck on the fact that they caught all these fish that he knows that God allowed to happen. And his sinfulness was so awareness. He was so aware of his sinfulness. He didn't even want to be around Jesus. I, I was doubting you so much. And then you did this. Imagine how it's going to be when we get to see Jesus. We're going to be like, man, we should have lived every moment. For this moment. And by his grace, we're forgiven for those times that we didn't and we're rewarded for the times that we did. But it's a promotion and that's a tension for us. Because we celebrate. I walked in the room. I was like, hey, 2021, we made it. But if we but if we didn't, is that like the is that a bad thing? Not for the believer, it isn't. It's a tension. It's one of the tensions. In fact, Scripture, me and Michael talked about this yesterday, we jokingly said, Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it calls death the, five, the last enemy. Death is still an enemy, so we understand why it affects us. But if you're a believer, you're going home. We're not talking about having a death wish. We're talking about having the biblical perspective on what death represents for those of us who believe in it. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Jesus' glory was to suffer for us. So our suffering will bring him glory. They're inextricably linked. Being glorified comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. She said, Lord, there's already a stench. In that situation, that was a cost to her. What is the cost to you? What is being glorified? What is it costing you? You see, suffering and glory will come at our expense because he paid for our sins and it was expensive. It's going to come at our expense because he paid for our sins and it was expensive for God to become a human being, to live perfectly, to die brutally and then rise gloriously so that you and I, so our suffering would make sense. As hard as it is, the suffering of the cross makes our suffering make sense. And it's a reality. 2 Timothy 3.12. I know this verse by heart. I think everybody should memorize this verse. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, will experience some suffering. Indeed. We have to take the broadness of our faith and apply it specifically so that we're not missed 
misunderstanding what God is doing. We have to remember how he works. Hold these tensions. That sometimes he's right there, right here, but he's not changing the circumstances necessarily. He's not unaffected by them. But there's somehow his glory is being revealed. And I would say it's most seen in the fact that we still trust him when it's challenging. So if 2021 is actually not better than 2020, if it's worse or, or bad in different ways, God is still glorifying himself and we're being like him, being made to be like him in the midst of the challenge. Make sure we understand that the broadness of our faith, the he's the way to salvation, is applied specifically in our circumstances. Martha forgot this. She didn't understand, so Jesus had to adjust her. Didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God in the midst of this? They were having two different conversations. Let's you and I try to be on the same conversational time as God is. Understanding his word, understanding the broadness and the specificity of our faith. It will carry us through to his glory and our good. The reason why I wanted to do this passage was because this was, this whole idea, this whole idea, everything about this passage came from just reflection and meditation. So the very things that we were talking about, about don't forget your sword was just me meditating on this passage deeply. I'm going through the book of John slow, meditating deeply, and this message comes out of that meditation. There's so much in God's word for us to see if we will slow down, set up a time to actually read it, and then think about what we're reading, asking those questions, asking questions, looking at details and wondering, why did you include this detail? Why was this important for us to know? Don't forget your sword, because we are definitely going to need it in 2021. I'm not putting my sword down because 2020 is over. I'm practicing with it because I know 2021 is going to have its own trouble. And if I'm here, Lord willing, that trouble's coming my way. So, Father, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy and your word. There's so much depth in your word that even if we're not speaking from what you originally intended the writer of the scriptures to get it. In fact, most of us don't read the Bible and think what was the original recipient, what was it for originally. We apply it. We think about how it affects us. Lord, I pray that you would stir up a hunger for your word this year as we, as we meditate on how it affects us. And then I pray that you would make the broadness of our faith in you, that we, yes, we believe that you are the Messiah, the way to salvation. But now we got to deal with, we believe that you're going to help us get a job or help us not get COVID or help, whatever it is. We got to believe that. We got to believe that you're working when we're in the midst of seeing things that seem the opposite of you. Help us to hold that tension of your character and your capabilities. Help us to remember 
that some of the ways that you work are not rushing in. In fact, I would say the majority of the verse of the Bible passages are not showing you rushing in to save the people that you love and that love you, but that you're allowing their suffering to happen because it glorifies you that, they, that we still believe in you when it happens. Doesn't mean we're asking for suffering, but I'd like to see this year and many more years to come. And many of us who are watching this, if not all of us would, but Lord, the broadness of my faith, the, the salvific notion of my faith must be applied specifically to my circumstances. May I not make the mistake that I believe Martha made here. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for that message, Kurt. Uh, very encouraging. And... Uh, meaty. Um, we do have a, a, a few questions. Uh, the first one is, um, are there particular things we can do to, to grow in exercising the specific faith that you speak of in this message? So I, I think, so the shameless plug, the first would be to meditate on scripture. I think, I think, I think meditation has gotten such a low, like, like American, there was a lot we could say about American Christianity. I think part of what is challenging is we consider like a quiet time. Like we used to call them quiet times. And you might still call them that time with the Lord, whatever. We tend to make that revolve around a moment that we set aside to read the Bible. And somewhere just doing that became maturity and understanding. But then we'd watch people who did that eventually no longer want to be a believer. And you realize that it, it has to be something deeper than that. Like, listen, I'm not, if, if you, there are people, and I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful. I don't necessarily think this is true, but I'm grateful that there are people who think, man, Kurt, you really handle the word. You bring out things I haven't seen before. Cool. I am grateful. But in all honesty, all of us should be, Hebrews 5, man, and again, some people are gifted to teach, I understand that, but Hebrews 5, when it says, you know, some of you should be teachers of the law, right, but you need milk instead of spiritual, you need, you need milk instead of meat, solid food is for the mature, so to speak. There's a sense where, man, we should be thinking and meditating on the word of God and, and, and looking at things like asking questions and training yourself to ask questions of the scriptures so that you can grow. I mean, the first time I remember doing that, people would be like, all right. First, God told me, look, ask like these questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? And what does it say about Jesus or something like that? That's how I started with just meditating, those three questions. And then eventually just other, other things came to my mind as I read it. I think we have to really meditate on the word of God because if you look at what the scriptures are, these are not broad truths about God. They're very specific narratives. Yes, you have laws and stuff about obeying, but the majority of the Bible is a story. It's narrative. It's so that we get in, we see how is God working specifically in the moment. We have to train ourselves to realize, oh, wow, this is crazy that he said this and did this. Why, is he, why, did he want, why did he put this in his word? Why does he want us to know this? Why is this important to him and trying to figure that out? Those things will help us make connections to specific things in our lives. It's a good question, though, good question. Um, the next question is, uh, you mentioned 2 Timothy 3.12. 
Are there other passages that have helped you process suffering or to have faith in specific areas? Yeah, so Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, I've said some of these before. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. But he will not disown himself. Those are things that we're just going to suffer. That we're, we're, that, um, uh, shoot, Paul, I mean, 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul's just walking through all that suffering, like everything that he suffered and is still a believer. Whew, like Paul describes stuff that you hope you never experience. As a matter of fact, Paul describes stuff that you will read and be like, I don't know if I could still believe when I read it. But then you realize, like, man, it happens. I told you the story. I'm not going to tell the story now. But when I was in India and I was about to get martyred, we thought, like, man, we're about to die. We were standing in front of maybe 100 people. They were yelling at us. And I just knew, well, they're going to throw rocks at me. There was a, a power that I haven't experienced often in my life. Well, I walked to the front. And one, I, I mean, like when Stephen was getting stoned and he was like, man, Father, forgive them. And he could see Jesus. It was sort of like that for me. Like the Lord empowers us when we suffer, especially if it's going to be like that. So I think just, you know, there are scriptures like that. I think, um, uh, and I think, I think, I think John uh, uh, 15, 18 through 27. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If you were like the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you are not like the world, I've called you out of the world, it will hate you. Those are the passages I'm like, okay, Lord, I, I, this is it. I'm going to be, I'm going to experience some, some trial and some, some suffering. And some of it's going to be because I specifically believe in you. Some of it's going to be in terms of my faith, express faith. Some of it's going to be suffering because I believe in you, that I'm resisting sin, that I want to do it, but I got to fight it. So there's levels to it, but, but those are some of the passages that have really helped me significantly. Thank you. Um, the next question is um, how, how do we enter into the grieving and suffering of others uh, practically, like death, depression, and other types of suffering, even though we have an eternal hope? So, you know. Uh, like John, a Jason. Yes. Like someone and like who's Jesus a in, in this. Yeah, yeah, like Jesus in the passage. So again, I think this is about mindset, right? What, what, what is it that I'm trying to do? And let me give an example, and then I'll explain what I mean. People will often say, hey, Kurt, how do I help someone not believe this or do this? And I think, well, what do you mean by help? And they'd be like, how can I help them not do this? And I said, well, you can't. You can't, unless they're your children, and they're young enough to not, like, talk back and do their own thing, right? Then you just really can't do it. You can say things, but that doesn't mean you're going to accomplish it. So we have to redefine what faithfulness looks like. And that, so for me, there are people who will hear these messages, who have heard messages that we teach, and who diso disobey the word of God as if we ain't just talk about that. And it happens. And I, I don't look at myself like, oh, man, even though I don't think I'm a, a great teacher, I don't look at myself like, oh, man, I'm the worst because they're not applying it. It's like, listen. Faithfulness for me is I need to say what I believe God is speaking to us from this passage and for our church, and then I'm going to help you try, myself included, help us do it. But should you not do it, I don't ultimately think, oh, man, I'm the worst. Dude. It's like you're going to stand before God and give an account for that. So we have to sort of redefine what faithfulness looks like. So take that principle of redefine faithfulness into grieving with others. 
And I think it starts with just imitation of Jesus. So you got Romans 12 that really says, oh, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. We have examples. We have Job's friends. We have Jesus. We have examples of this happening where I think we need to understand two things when people are in grief. One, that it's a, it, depending on their relationship to the person, it's going to have a different impact. And what people don't necessarily need is the immediate truth from God. They need the immediate presence of God. And sometimes us being available to be with people, crying, weeping, that's, that's part of God's presence with people. Like God, God is with his people. He works through his church. It's not like we're just all here. This is why church is important. That's why Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, what? There I am with them, right? Because he's in the presence of his people. We minimize that because sometimes we want the presence to feel supernatural when in reality it's just... It's just we're together in this. So depends on your relationship to the person. I think you can grieve with them. You pray with them if you have conversation with them. You try to listen to their emotion, listen to how they feel. And when it's appropriate, you try to remind them of things that are true. But most people, grief, grief is not the absence of truth. This is what people forget. Like sometimes we think like a person's grieving and they need to remember God is sovereign. Man, people ain't grieving because they don't think God is sovereign. They're grieving because they're processing his sovereignty. And so grief is not the absence of, of, of God's presence. It's, it's persevering through the midst of it when we're struggling with some of the things that he allows to happen. So we got to redefine how we think about grief for other people. And sometimes it's like, hey, listen, this person isn't ready to walk away from the faith unless they tell you that. So let's just mourn with them. Let's weep with them. Let's try to encourage them. And then lastly, and which I think is in many ways the most important, can we practically serve them? How do we practically put hands to the plow? How do we apply James? Hey, I'm praying for you. Yes, yes. Uh, but I say, hey, is there anything I can do? If you need anything, please let me know. I, I want to be there. And then don't make that a, cor a cordiality. Make that a, a, something that you say you're going to do. So those are some things that help us enter in. I, I think the thing that we have to be careful of, I had to tell, I told one brother this. We were talking about this when we talked about it. Don't try to imagine if it was you. That's, that's a dangerous thing to do, is, you know, imagine if, if it happened to you and how your kids would be in your, or whatever, your loved one. That's not helpful, because what that does is, is, is it that's not your situation, it's not your trial, it's not what's happening. And God doesn't really give grace for our imaginations. He gives grace for what we're actually going through. So it's not helpful to try to imagine if it were you and drum up emotions. It's like, that's not what God had for you. That's not what God has for me. That's not what God has for uh, right now. We're still here. That's not what he has. And so stay away from trying to imagine if it was you and just think about, okay, what can I do to help? And sometimes it may just be depending on your relationship. Let me grieve with the person. Lastly, I know this is a long answer, but I've just been thinking about this a lot because I've, I've had to do this specifically recently. Um, I think it's important for, for you and I to not question God's sovereignty in these moments. It doesn't mean we won't struggle. You know, like John the Baptist, you've heard me tell this story a hundred times. I'm so glad it's in the Bible, Luke 7, when Jesus said, blessed are the ones who are not offended because of me, about John the Baptist, who was wondering, are you the Messiah or not? Apply that passage to you because sometimes we can take up an emotional offense 
towards God for people when we struggle with what he allowed to happen. And that's not our job. That's not our responsibility. My job is not to be angry at God with you, but to be, but to be faithful to God for you. Sometimes you got to be faithful to God for others. Sometimes you got to be strong when other people are not. That's what we wear as pastors a lot. Like I said in the previous message, don't think for a moment that Mike and I haven't struggled with, with COVID or with politics or with race and having to think about where you all are and be strong and not, you have no idea how, how we, I was like, man, I'm, watch me get COVID and die this year so that people, God sobers people up. I've had that thought a ton of times, ton of times. I wouldn't even tell my wife that because I didn't want her to be worried like, oh no. Because sometimes we think like this. My wife would tell you, sometimes we think, man, you're a pastor. Man, God might let something happen to us because, you know, just to make an example so you can apply. We think like that all the time. We don't know. I have no clue. But I just can't live like, you know, I can't be walking like, you know, off the Scooby-Doo in the house. Walking around like I'm scared. Like We just got to live. I can't be walking around like on eggshells at God's going I just got to live. And I have to trust God. And so I don't, I don't want to take up an emotional offense. I don't want to be angry for people who are suffering because, nah, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be in tune with the Lord and recognize that, you know what, suffering is a part of the life. It's not what I'm asking for. I don't necessarily want that suffering, Lord, but you know what, Lord, Job said it rest, right? Do we accept good from the Lord and not evil? Job said that to his wife. She said, curse God and die. You still believe in God? Man, you tripping. She said it just like that in the, in the street, in the, in the super black uh, translation of the Bible. You tripping. And he was like, man, will we accept good from the Lord and not evil? So I think we have, to, we have to really believe that, that those are some of the ways that we help others. Thank you, sir. Um, this next question is, um, is there a way for us to, uh, for this message, for us to, make this message make sense to the unsaved when we're sharing the gospel or ministering to them? Yeah, we're going to talk about that Wednesday night. So part of what we're talking about Wednesday night is digital kingdom. And we're going to talk about this. Why we doing a, we want to, so we already, we had a meeting in October where we talked about the vision, but we, we said in that meeting that we knew that we figured COVID was going to spike and that would change some things. So we wanted to wait until January to see, and now we've been able to assess what some of the challenges are in light of it. So we're going to have another meeting on Wednesday and walk through some of that. And I think um, Mike will probably have some very specific things. We're going to talk about this. I have some specific things. So I'm going to hold off on that answer until Wednesday because I think that's an important question. And I think we and, and because we are going to interact with people more so even if it's online or, or, or family members and stuff like that, you interact differently. So I do want to answer that question, but I'm going to hold off and wait until our, our, our one another meeting Wednesday. Matter of fact, we might even start with that, just to kind of walk through, well, after I kind of remind us of what digital kingdom means for us and how we're, we'll, we'll get there. But that's an important question. Thank you for asking that. But I'm, I'm going to hold off. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Wednesday. We uh, have a few more questions. Uh, this one is, um, they kind of give a description and then get to their question. They start with this question, but then kind of elaborate and then summarize. Um, what specific faith are we supposed to have in suffering? Um, having too specific a faith in 2021, God will get me a promotion and protect all my relatives from death, may be too specific. But 
God will work it out sounds just as broad as you are the Messiah. So what specific faith should we have? So I think the, the initial question was about suffering, right? What specific yeah, faith should we suffering. have? Yeah, in suffering, Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Here's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of them, but let me just give you one. James chapter one, verses two through four. So let's just read it together. Let's read it together. James one, two through four. Nothing I'm saying is, is, is outside of what the Bible is expecting of us. So here we go. James 1, and you're probably familiar with it. The person who asked the question, you're probably familiar. And again, sometimes, this is the thing about, this is the reason why I think God gave us a book is because I, don't, I think we tend to want things that are new and just God says, no, focus on things that are true. We're always looking for something new as if we've applied all the old stuff. <laughs> we haven't applied the old. So we don't need nothing new. Many of us can't handle nothing new. You can't handle the truth. We, we need something old. And, and this is why I think it. So let's look at uh, James 1, verses 2 through 4. Here's how we process specific hope. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials. Why? Because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So here's God's perspective. When I allow suffering in your life, it's teaching you how to endure, persevere. What does that mean? It's teaching you that you can still go through difficult things and trust me. And that needs to happen so that you are mature. Because maturity is not the absence of suffering. It's the perseverance through it. It's, it's, it's 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, or 2 Timothy 4, Paul saying, man, I finished the race. I fought the good fight of faith. He recognizes all the suffering that he went through. What he's saying in those passages in 2 Timothy 4 is that I still believe. I'm about to die, and I'm dying as a person who believes. In fact, and we're going to get to this after Romans in about five or seven years when we get out to Romans. We're actually going to be back at Romans starting next week. For those of you that have been judging me, gown, gavel, bailiff, and all. We're going to get back to Romans next week. But this, the, the reality, though, and, the, and this issue is about, like, okay, how do we deal with faith? And that's what Hebrews 11 is. One of the reasons why I love Hebrews 11 is because all of those people are super flawed. And that's who God is using to give us the example of faith. Sometimes we think faith, faithfulness and godliness in people is just they just don't go through nothing, and they just have this sort of enigmatic uh, relationship with God, it's like, nah. Maturity here is about persevering through it. So what's a, what's a specific faith? Is that God is, 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 is encouraging me to grow through this. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 30, uh, uh, 10, 12, and 13. You know, you, well, I'd say 10, 13. Let's go there real quick. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I know it, but I just want to go, let's go there together. So here's another one when we're struggling with sin. So the other one is just various trials. It could be things that are happening externally, like COVID or something's wrong with my, my car or something is wrong. We're not financially where we need to be or we have health issues or whatever. That's, God is using those to help us. But then you get to 1 Corinthians 10, and it says, look, no temptation has, has come upon you except what is common to humanity. So, okay, I'm facing something that a lot of people face. Right. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, let me explain what this, people misunderstand this verse all the time. They think that it's saying God won't ever give you anything too difficult for you. That's not true. It's, it's, it, it, will be, it won't be too difficult to you from God's perspective, but it'll be too difficult for you from your perspective. Just ask women who, just A, women who have children without epidurals. They understand that pain is something, and they persevere through it, right? So again, you, this idea that we think, oh, God's not going to give me, no, 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 God's going to provide a way. What, it, what this verse means is God's never going to allow temptation to be so overwhelming to you that you have to sin. There's no way of escape. He says, nah, he's always going to provide a way of escape. So it's not going to be you're going to get some temptation that's so overbearing that there's nothing you can do but just sin. Nah, he's not going to give it to you. He's never going to put it on us like that. Well, he always provides a way of escape. These are things that help me know, okay, even if what I'm experiencing is tough, there's a purpose. And this is why I said the cross, the suffering of the cross informs the suffering of us, our, our suffering, because there's a purpose. Jesus didn't just suffer. He suffered for a purpose. We don't just suffer. We suffer for a purpose. His suffer was for saving us. Our suffering is to be like him, is to grow in maturity and responding in ways that, are, uh, uh, that honor the Lord. And those are some of the specific things that we hold on to when it comes to all the stuff you're talking about, about a, a, a job and this and that. Those are cool. You can have them, but they might be a form of suffering to you if you don't get them. Those, and the Bible never promises those things, though. That's the thing, like all that name and claiming stuff, that prosperity stuff. And the Bible doesn't promise no new nothing. You know what the Bible promises? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And it promises that those who persevere to the end will be saved. It promises that there will be a crown of life for those who love his appearing. It promises to wipe away every tear from their eye. It promises to bring a new heaven and a new earth together. But it promises, it, those are all promises too. So anyway, I can go on and on with this because this is all I think about. Thank you. Thank you very much. The, I don't think the tension can be escaped. You know, like the, the message you did yeah. on the, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego yeah. before Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. They're, they're like, you know God what? will. That's right. God, God can, God will, but he might not. He might not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this other question, this next question is one. Good questions, uh, guys, by the way. Thank you for these questions. They are great questions. Um, is there a way to discern whether to stay in a situation of suffering or to exit from it when given a choice. For example, uh, this could be a relationship or it could even be, um, you know, decisions with how to navigate COVID, like fellowshipping with people face-to-face -face and accepting that God is sovereign. You know, how um, do we discern when um, a situation of suffering is one we should just exit or just resign ourselves to? Mm. Really good question. And I don't have a really good answer. <laughs> Sorry. Next question. Nah. So here's what I would say. When it comes to suffering on a relational context, here's what I think. When this suffering is causing me to sin, I'm out. That's a wrap for me. Um, I I'm not going to subject myself to a some, some relational dynamics that cause me to sin or that make it extremely, like I'm, I'm finding I can't 
experience victory. Now, let me give you an example. When I first recommitted my life to the Lord, I would still go back to my old neighborhood, Bell Haven. And I would, even though I was a Christian and going to church and reading my Bible, I would still get high with them dudes. Like it was the temptation of being in that atmosphere and still loving them dudes. I would pretty much just do the same thing. And, I, and then it, was, it wasn't until it hit me on a, on a, it was a Labor Day, Memorial Day. No, Labor Day is the fall. It was Labor Day. I had spent the weekend at my man's house. We was getting high all weekend. I was sitting beside my man Amir. He was a young dude. He was a, he was a gangster, like Amir. He was, he was a young gangster. And I, I, remember, I remember wanting to share the gospel with him. But I felt hypocritical because I was smoking with him at the same time. And I was I didn't want to be like, hey, yo, you got to believe in Jesus. But I just felt like, nah, this ain't, this doesn't seem right. So I ain't say nothing. I left on Sunday. And then my man called me Monday and said, Amir got shot nine times and died. And it was in that moment I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I, I'm, I didn't blame myself, but I feel like I lost an opportunity to be able to be like, let me, let me preach to and I just, I was like, I'm done. And I was, I was like, I'm done. And I just, and I took, I took time away. I was like, I can't be around them because if I get around them, I'm, I'm not mature enough to, to get high. I'm not mature enough. And I, and I wasn't afraid to admit that. I'm not mature enough to, to be around you because I'll, I'm going to smoke. I'm going to drink a little bit. I'm going to do the things because I enjoy that. And I, and I sold to that, right? Whoever sold to the flesh will destruction. So I think when it comes to relational dynamics, and there's no one size fits all, because there's family, there's coworkers. There's, I think if it causes me to sin or it's making it really, really difficult, I'm just going to remove myself from that relationship. And, and I'll just, you know, entrust that to the Lord. Listen, the Lord doesn't need you to save this person. I mean, there are times we make dumb decisions. We compromise a lot for the salvation of others. And a lot of times, especially like in relationships, I know a lot of girls who compromise sexually to be in relationships with guys and win guys, and they usually don't win them. But I, I, as a matter of fact, I can't think of many, bro, of girls or guys who have been in relationships with people in hopes to, and they end up compromising themselves and the people don't come to faith. Because once you compromise, it's like, well, shoot, why I got to go to church? We, you're doing the same thing I'm doing right now. This is why I ain't say that to a man. So on the relational side, I think it's when it's, when it's, when it's just like, man, it's hard for me to be righteous in this situation. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with saying, you know what? I'm not mature enough yet to be around this person. So I'm just going to scale back. And if they get offended, then so be it. There was dudes who was like, man, what's up, man? You ain't even coming around the way, man. You don't even, what's up, young? What you doing? I was like, man, my bad. I'm just, I'm just busy on this side, man. I, I just got to chill. I'm trying to grow in the Lord. I just have to, I'm just trying to grow in the Lord. Oh, man, come on, man. You can come down here and chill. Like, nah, man, I'm just trying to go. It took me about two years before I was like, let me go back out there and see what's up. Then I could go around them and they could get high and it was like, nah, man, I'm good. I don't want that. But I, I wasn't mature enough. So in that sense, that's what I would do. And I'm sorry, I talked so long, I don't remember the second part of the question. I'm just in the zone right now. I'm just feeling it right now. <laughs> that's Black that, lightning up this joint. It was just about discerning. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? The, 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 there is no, you know what the best discerner is? Faith. The best discerner is faith. Like, you got, it's, it's, do I have faith, faith to do this? Do I have faith to not do this? And do I? It's faith. And it, and it can be subjective. Mm -hmm. But if it's, it's faith to glorify God, let me, let me, let me, let me say that. it's faith to glorify God in this situation. If I'm like, I can't, if, this, if I don't think this glorifies God, I'm not going to do it. And I have to respect that other people have it. This is why passages like Romans 14 are important. Mm -hmm. Romans 14 is classic understanding of this question. Some people think, uh, eat, eating meat sacrificed to idols is not. Some people think it is. 
Serve your brother. So if I'm around people, like I'm, not, I'm, I'm personally okay with being around people who I believe to be okay and not have COVID, and I'm, I can chill with them. I ain't wearing no mask in my home. But if I'm, if I'm hanging with someone and they're really scared of that, then I would do that to serve them. I just wouldn't do it in my home because I have a rule. I'm not wearing a mask in my home. So uh, unless I'm trying to scare the kids or the kitten or something. Uh-oh, have it for that way. But, but I, think, I think it's faith. It's really, we minimize. And here's the thing, and this is what I mean. This is what I mean about faith. If God is truly sovereign and knows everything, then he already knows what decision you're going to make in faith to glorify him. And he's already embraced that and accepted you in light of that decision. So for me, I don't, I don't get caught up too much on it. I just be like, all right, Lord, I'm going to go ahead and have this decision and make this decision. Uh, uh, Cronkite, you mind if I share the Thanksgiving story? So uh, I remember Mike and Liz were working through this. They were, it was Thanksgiving. It was like, hey, do we have family come over or not? And it was, it was a real challenge. A lot of people had to work through this. They called me, and we talked through it, and we talked about faith because Mike was worried that his mom coming and not being exposed to people and, and with COVID and all this type of stuff. And they was really trying to work through that. And it was a real issue. We talked for about an hour on the phone. And at the end of the day, I was just like, what it boils down to is faith that you guys have. And I, and I said some things because I know them very well. I said some things for Mike to consider and stuff like that. And you know what? And they worked through it. They worked through it and came to a, a, situa- came to a decision that blessed everybody. And they had a great time. Didn't save me a plate or nothing. Still mad about that. So, again, it's, it's, it's those real-time things are not like, here's what the Bible says. It's here's the faith I have. And so I respect people's faith. Some people don't have faith. To my, my son has friends that he wants to come over, but their parents don't have faith to do that yet. Cool. I'm not going to be offended. We do if we think the people are cautious and careful. So um, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's a measure of faith. It always is. Um, I just wanted to read the end of uh, Romans 14. Mm, please. Uh, verses 21 uh, on say, it is a good thing not to eat meat or to drink wine, or to do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. Crush it. It's a matter of faith. It's just always going to be a matter of faith. We want, we want fat. We want like it to be like <laughs> evidential. Like oh, oh, oh. it's just like nah. Some people just like all right. This is I'm, I'm good with this and I'm okay with that. And I said that to the Lord. I was like, Lord, that's remember the first message. Don't live in fear. Don't live as a fool. Don't forget one another. Uh, and because I said at the end of the day, here's what I believe: you are not going to get COVID and die from it unless the Lord says you're getting COVID and dying from it. And that's whether if you stay in a bunker, if the Lord says you dying from it, somehow, some way, you're going to get COVID and die. If you ain't dying from it, then you ain't dying from it. And that's just the reality, no matter how we slice it. Now, like I said, I ain't saying be a fool. Like some people was going around licking the cans in the, in the, in the supermarket and then they got COVID. It was like, well, that was you was a fool and, that, and there's consequences for that. But I'm also not going, you know, it's just like, all right, Lord, I trust you in this. I don't want it. I hope I don't get it. But if you know what, I trust you. And if I do, you still a God. Um, this person asks, um, could you elaborate on um, 
living in this present life while also considering our larger hope. They find it hard to balance having goals on earth like um, a career, family aspirations, um, and knowing that it'll all be taken away. Um, is it a way to enjoy here and, what, and what's to come? Or they ask, um, should they sit here and wait for eternity? So again, thank you, this is a great question. This is that tension, right? So we, theologically, we call this, this tension already not yet, right? And let me give you an example. I, I will say right now that I'm saved. I would say that everyone in this room that I know of is saved, especially if they say it. If they don't say it, then I ain't saying it. So I ain't telling nobody they say they don't think they saved. I'm going to go with what you say. But like there's a sense where, but the scripture says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. So I can say that we're saved. Those who profess, look, Romans 10. We'll get to Romans 10 hopefully in a few months. And hopefully in less than a few months. Because we start in, well, never mind. So we, <laughs> Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus uh, died and rose from the dead, then you are saved. That's what it says. But then it says, those who persevere to the end are saved. So you can say, well, wait a minute. Is that a contradiction? No, it's just that God is speaking outside of time to people who are living in time. So God makes a declarative statement that you are saved, and that's he knows who's really saved, but it says, but in time, we persevere to the end. It's called the already and not yet. And so there are things that are true already, but they're not yet our experience, right? It's the same thing with what you're talking about. It's attention. It's I need to be a good steward of what God's given me. So I need to work. I need to save. I need to do things that help my, my, what I'm supposed to do here. Like, there's stewardship involved in living in this life. But I also don't know, you know, there's Proverbs, the king, Proverbs 21, was the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, uh, is it, but the Lord provides his steps, right? So there's a sense where I'm, you're allowed to make plans. That's not sinful. You're allowed to make plans. Now, what James talks about in James 4, I believe, and I say this all the time, it's about Lord willing. You know, you say, hey, we'll go to this city and next year we'll do that. What he's getting at is a presumption that you're just going to be around like ain't nothing going to happen, can't nothing happen to you. And so the, the phrase Lord willing is what he says to allow, to, to remind yourself, hey, that could happen if the Lord wills it. So I think that's the tension re resolver for me personally is Lord willing. I say that to my kids. All, I say it all the time. Now, I used to never say it, but now I say it all the time, especially after 2020, because you just don't know. You see people one day, they may be gone the next. You just don't know. And so I say, Lord willing, all the time, even, even now, the small things like, all right, boys, I'll be right back. I'm going to the store. I'll be right back, Lord willing. Because I, so I could get in a car accident. Something could happen. I could die at the steering wheel. And they, and they like, so I, don't want, I want to always have that option to be like that reality of Lord willing. But that's the tension. I think the tension is I need to be faithful in this life and be a good steward and do things. And it's not sinful to have those promises, but it's the... It's the Garden of Gethsemane sort of paradigm, okay? Jesus prays, you know, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. I think many of us, our prayers, we pray like this, and the Lord is just slowly just peeling back those fingers so that we still pray for the same thing, but now we're praying like this. So it's, Lord, this is what I like to do. Here's where I'm at. Not my will, your will be done, though. So if the Lord says, nah, that's not what's going to happen. We ain't, ain't going to do it that way. I might be disappointed, but I'm not disappointed because, because a lot of us, if we're honest, we, we, we tend to treat 
the things that we desire as promises in Scripture. So when you don't get married or don't have something happen or don't, it's almost like God let you down. And it's like, what verse were you looking at? What translation was that? The Creflo Dollar translation is not inspired. So that we can't always, we can't relate to them translations. The reality is, is like, okay, some of the things that I desire are not promises that God said I'm going to have. But it doesn't make it sinful for me to desire those things. I just have to hold them open. And say, all right, Lord, here's, here's what I'd like to do. Here's, what, here's, my, here's my 2021 bucket list. And I know that, man, it might not be none of them get done. And God is still good despite those things. So it's a tension. It's a tension of faithfulness and stewardship you must have. Hopes and desires you're allowed to have. But uh, guarantees on those things you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have. So that's what I would say. Um, this question actually came in first. And it is, do you believe Christians are in the presence of God as soon as they die? Or do you believe uh, judgment day is the same day for everyone? <laughs> that's a good question theologically. Uh, that's a good theological question. Because there's a question about it. Some people think, do you sleep? Do you wait till the, you know? Um, so I, I personally think, I look at like, like the thief on the cross, right? He pronounces faith in Jesus, and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Because that dude, they're all dying soon, within hours. So Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus also says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit before he dies. Now Jesus is unique, but he also told the guy beside him, you're going to be with me in paradise as well. So, you didn't, so there, are, there are differing viewpoints on this issue. I think, and so people try to, the Bible doesn't call it this, but there are people who, theologians, who call it an intermediate heaven and sort of an intermediate hell where there's an intermediate place of torment and the intermediate place of, of pleasure with God. And, but that's not the full end because it's not over. Because Revelation 22 is where you see the new city coming out of God. And all, so it's not going to be what it looks like now until death and all those is the last enemy, right? So there's a war going on, but I don't, I don't think we're sleeping until I think there is, we are in the presence of God in an intermediate state. And, but I don't think we, I don't know if we, I don't think we, I personally don't think we get glorified bodies until everything is said and done. That's what I think. So I think we are in the presence of God when we die. And I think Paul even said, man, I was called up to the third heaven. And, 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 you know, he's in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he's talking about, I know a man who was, he was talking about himself. And, and he said that the thorn in his flesh was actually the result of God keeping him humble because he'd seen things that no man had seen and wasn't even allowed to utter the things that he heard. So I think what Paul saw was heaven, levels of heaven. He got to the third heaven and saw things that were amazing. I don't think God showed him those so that he would die and not see them. I think he showed them those because that's what, that's what we'll see when we go be with the Lord. Stephen, he's getting stoned and says, man, I see the Lord sitting at the right hand of God. Now, granted, those were different situations, but I think there's enough snapshots in the Bible of people being alive and well after they die. Even like Samuel going to meet the witch and trying to contact, uh, trying, Saul trying to contact Samuel, you know. Samuel being like, man, what you doing, man, you know. What you contacting me for? I think Samuel said he was asleep, though. I might, I might be mistaken. But the point is that I think there's enough snapshots of 
life and seeing Jesus after death in the Bible. They're snapshots, but I think, I think Christians are, are, are with the Lord in an intermediate state. I'm sorry. Follow up on that question sure. um, for, for me, um, just for the sake of And so then are you saying that judgment day is the same for everyone? That revelation picture you referred to? I, I don't. I think they I, I don't think that way. So I think I think revelation. So I think we get a couple different views of judgment. The main one would be Revelation 20, 11 through 15, mm-hmm. which is the big, the great judgment seat. The books are open and all of that. But then I think you get first Corinthians three is a judgment of believers. Right. Where he talks about each person's work will be measured by, you know, the, the, the true gospel, the cross. And they said, if, if anyone's foundation is built on hay, wood, or straw, he himself may be saved, but his works will burn up. So that's what that whole surprise about, man, some people are going to make it because they, the grace of God is so significant. Let me say this, going back to the thief on the cross, his grace is so ridiculous that this guy who can do no good works is going to experience eternity with him. That there are people who have done work, who genuinely believe, but some of their, a lot of their works are going to not make it. They're going to get burnt up. They're going to get burnt up and not make it. But it said he himself will be saved. That's talking about a rewards judgment. Believers, will, we're all going to stand before God, but your, your name's written in the book of life. That's really, that's really the final separation of heaven and hell. Now, I personally believe that when that moment happens, those who are in heaven are already going to know that they're in heaven. Like, you're going to know when you die. It ain't like, I don't think you're going to be asleep, and it's like the lottery. Like, did I win or not? I think you're going to know you're in heaven, and then that, 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 that moment won't be, will be a moment of rewards. There are going to be things that we lost. There are going to be rewards that, that were burnt up because my motive was sinful or my sins just, you know, took away some reward. But then there are going to be things where the Lord is like, nah, my son, this is a reward for you for your faithfulness. And so I think those will happen. So I, I, I don't think everyone is judged the same way. I think there's going to be eternity with God. So that the second death is when he throws in Satan, death, the beast, the Antichrist, and all who follow them into the lake of burning sulfur. That's, that's a different judgment. And that's not going to be, believers aren't going to be a part of that because we already are faith in God. Our judgment is going to be, what do we earn? What is God giving us because of his faithfulness in us? Which is still crazy to me, to think that we're going to be rewarded for things that we wouldn't have done unless God prompted us by a spirit to do them. That is, that the grace of God is just insane when you think about some of the realities. So. All right, I have one. This is the last question. Oh, yeah, I was getting it in. Remember what I say? I said, man, ain't probably ain't going to be no questions today. <laughs> I was like, ain't probably going to be no questions today, huh? This is like part two of a sermon. I'm getting my work in. Um. And I love it. This is basically getting your thoughts on their thought process. So, can you please speak uh, on this further for me? Because I think I already, I, I think I already know the answer. The first subconscious thing I think of when I hear of glorifying God is that glorifying Him is public. We glorify Him by making Him great to others. But I also think it's private, just as just just us with him glorifying him. You touched on that in saying that we glorify him by trusting him when it's hardest. And that would only be known by him and us. So glorifying him can be public and private? Yes? I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, 100%. 
I mean, there's so many different stories that show both, right? So you show, so let me give you a couple examples. The woman who gave two bits, no one else knew what she gave. Jesus saw that. He said she gave more than everybody else because she gave all that she had, and they gave from what the abundance of what they had. He saw that. He saw that. Jesus also said in Matthew 6 before praying, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So there was this sense of when you're fasting, clean your face up. You know, don't, be, look, don't look like you struggle. Like you, you, People should walk in and be like, you fasting today, huh? That's a Snickers commercial. When you're doing it for the Lord, you should look well-fed and, 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 and not. You shouldn't be looking all like, hey, how y'all doing? What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm just fasting. Nah, it should look like, man, you look good. He said, clean your face up, you know, wash your face. So there's a, there's, you see stuff like that, like, hey, don't, don't, that stuff in private. Do that when you go pray, pray in private. Don't let everybody know what you, so there's a sense where that glorifies God. But then it's like, hey, listen, we, we exclaim from the rooftops the things that we hear, right? You, you can't, how can you do good to everyone? You know, Galatians 6.10, do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith, right? How do, doing good is a, how do you bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ? All those things are with other people, in the presence of other people. So it is, it's, it's definitely both. It's definitely both. I think what we have to, and we may need to do this at some point. I mean, we're getting back to Romans, so next week. But at, maybe at some point we'll hit some place in Romans where we can do this, or maybe when there's a week where we're, taking a, a week or something off, we'll do a, a brief mini-series or even a sermon on just glory because I think it's an it's a misunderstood biblical concept where his glory is, is sometimes seen in like these really subtle ways, even in the scriptures. They're like, it's like, man, that, that, wow, you said his glory was revealed in that. It was just super subtle. Like you wouldn't, you, we think of glory as, as, as like this supernatural sort of thing that happens all the time and when it's just average. But it said heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, right? So it's just like, that's, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. There's somebody, that means heaven's always rejoicing because somebody's repenting at every moment, every day somewhere, you know? It probably ain't a couple of days where heaven ain't rejoicing. Like it's, so again, God shows you like, hey, these, these little things that seem little are important to God. And then these big, these, so it's definitely public and private. But we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, that aspect or maybe we'll do it through the D groups or something and talk through that because I do think it's a misunderstood concept of his glory and how it plays out it's not just in suffering and then it's a, but it's largely connected to that but there is a sense where his glory is a little bit more um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, it's not as dynamic as we make it seem I think it pleases God God is glorified when we do things like, let me read today when I don't feel like it. Let me share the gospel with somebody, even though I'm a little afraid to. Let me, those things glorify God. So we'll, we'll talk about that um, in, a, in a future sermon. So, look, thank you guys so much for uh, the time. This was, I'm, 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 I'm glad that there's giving in our church because these, these become, these be these two sermon Sundays, feel like. Now, now, honestly, I am grateful for the questions. And, you know, for Mike and I, it, it really blesses us that people that you all are thinking through these things and, and asking these questions, and I'm blessed by that. So I, I would stay here for hours if I needed to. I joke about it, but I enjoy doing this with you all because I love our church. I love you all, and I'm grateful for the ways that you are thinking through these things and wrestling with them. And so thank you for the questions. You keep them coming as, as often as you, as you need to. 
Uh, this Wednesday, we will be doing a one another, and we will talk about the question that I didn't answer at some point in that meeting. But we're going to just refresh. This is an important meeting, so if everybody can, can make it, please make it. And if you can, show your face. Just wash your face up and then show your face. I, I, I want to see you. I appreciated the last one another we had. More people were showing their face, and it was cool because there are just some people I haven't even just seen in, in a long time. And so it was just cool to just see y'all and just, and just enjoy being together. So Wednesday night, 7.30, one another, Zoom, we'll get it in. Mike and I will be talking through some things, and, and, and we'll have a good meeting. I'm sure we'll laugh and stuff and catch up on a, some stuff from, from the holidays and all of that. All right? Love you guys. Grateful for you. Thank you. And lastly, thank you, thank you. There are people who gave me gifts and cards of encouragement and things for Christmas and all of that. Thank you. Thank you. There's a, there's a few of you. So sometimes I didn't get a chance to get to people specifically, um, but I just want to say thank you for those of you who did that. That meant a lot to me and, and to Mike as well. It's just that we don't look for those things, but it's, we're blessed when those things do occur. So thank you very much for your cards and your gifts and things like that. We're just all the more reason why we just love you and we're grateful to be pastors here at this church. All right. All right. Enjoy your gloomy Sunday and we will see you on Wednesday night. And don't forget Go pick up Reporting Live by Kirk Kennedy from iTunes, Amazon, or KirkKennedy.BandCamp.com. Get that album or you don't love Jesus. All right. See you guys Wednesday.